Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm in love with that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Welcome, welcome. Glad to have you here. This is the I'm in love with that song podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brad Page. Back in February 1964, 59 years ago, the Beatles made their first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show and literally changed everything about rock music overnight. That's when the Beatles conquered America, where it all started here. But if you want to look at where Beatlemania peaked, at least in terms of their first phase, it would have to be 18 months later, on August 15th, 1965, when the Beatles played before a sellout crowd at Shea Stadium in New York. At the time, the largest concert in history and still one of the most important chapters in the story of rock. Lori Jacobson is an author, and her new book tells the behind-the-scenes story of the Beatles at Shea Stadium. The book is called Top of the Mountain, And it's not only a detailed look at the concert itself, it's the incredible story of how the concert came to be in the first place, as well as the story of the people who put the show together and the fans who were there. And it's also full of some terrific photographs taken at the show. Many of them have never been seen before. You guys know that I'm a big Beatles fan, so I asked Lori to come on the podcast and talk about the night the Beatles took over Shea Stadium and her new book, Top of the Mountain. Lori Jacobson, welcome to the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. Uh, usually on this show, we focus on one song, but uh, today we're going to do something a little different because I read your book, and it is such a great story. I really wanted to talk to you about it. So your book is called Top of the Mountain, and it tells the story of the Beatles' legendary concert at Shea Stadium in August 1965. So first, let's... um. Let's get some facts and figures out of the way. This was the Beatles' second U.S. tour. 
Uh, it was actually the opening night of the show, the first show of that tour on August 15th at Shea Stadium in New York. And they played in front of 55,000 people. Is that right? 56. 56,000, uh, which was not only the Beatles' biggest concert, but it was the biggest concert audience ever at that time. It was a record they held until 1973 when Led Zeppelin broke the record with a 56-plus thousand attendance at a show in Tampa, Florida. But this is a really significant event. I believe no band had ever played at a stadium before this show. Is that, is that true? Not a stadium of this size. Yeah. They, and even the Beatles had played uh, a couple of smaller stadiums but not a, a huge baseball stadium like this. Right. Nothing approaching 56,000 seats. No one had ever done that before. No, no one. Not Elvis, not Sinatra. Nobody had ever played in front of this many people. Nobody had ever received the paycheck the Beatles received for that night. And 56,000 rock and roll fans had never laid eyes on one another before in such large numbers. Yeah. So let's introduce the cast of characters. Of course, we all know who the, the four Beatles are, but there was also Brian Epstein, uh, the Beatles' manager. Right. Talk about Brian Epstein for a bit. Oh, Brian Epstein was, you know, a, a very cultured, uh, refined young man. His parents were in the furniture business in Liverpool. And, you know, my dad was in the furniture business also. And they, of course, had a stereo department and they began selling records. And Brian did the exact same thing. It's just a natural for your stereo department. And one day somebody came in and asked for a record by the Beatles, and Brian had never heard of them before, but he decided to check them out because they were playing just down the street at the Cavern. So he was really impressed. You know, and here is Brian in his suit and tie and very buttoned up, and the Cavern is this basement mm -hmm. former fruit cellar with no uh, windows and hot, sweaty kids on lunch break coming to hear the Beatles. And he was really impressed. And he had the foresight to recognize that these guys could go places with a little help from him. Yeah. And then he hoped and prayed that America would call. He tried and tried uh, with, with no success, little to no success about getting them on the air in America. And suddenly one day his prayers were answered when another cast member, Sid Bernstein, called Brian. Yeah, and probably the single most important person in this story is Sid Bernstein. So tell us, who was Sid Bernstein? Sid Bernstein was a New York concert promoter. He booked pretty classy uh, concerts with people like Judy Garland and Tony Bennett, people like that. And uh he believed in keeping himself sharp, so he was taking a class, and the class assignment was to read newspapers from other countries. Well, 
Sid could only read English, so that limited him to the British newspapers. And, of course, he goes right to the entertainment section, since that's his field. And he keeps seeing these little blurbs about a group called the Beatles playing small cities in and around the UK. And the word pandemonium is always associated with their concerts. So, of course, this immediately catches his eye. And then he follows them weekly. And this word, pandemonium, who are these guys? He starts making some calls. He finds out that Brian represents them. And he, Sid is like, I got to have these guys here. I got to book them. And um, he found Brian's phone number and basically got Brian's mom on the phone and said, can Brian come out to play? You know, (laughs) Brian was so thrilled that America was finally calling. And Sid had this great idea to book the Beatles at Carnegie Hall, where no rock and roll group had ever been booked. And I think the only reason Carnegie Hall said yes was because they didn't know they were a rock and roll group. Right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. They were the first rock show at Carnegie Hall, right? Yes. And so, and Brian wasn't sure, you know, they're not on the air in New York. So 
Sid set the concerts several months out. And he said, believe me, by the time the concert rolls around, they'll be on the air here. I can I can promise you that. So in the interim, Ed Sullivan is passing through Heathrow Airport with his wife and comes in contact with thousands of girls screaming for the arrival of the Beatles. And of course, he says what's going on, finds out discovers that Sid has already booked them at Carnegie Hall and calls Sid Bernstein, who he knew very well, and um, asked if he could ride Sid's coattails, basically. Can I have them on my show three or four days before they appear at Carnegie Hall? Well, Sid thought this was great. That guarantees his show to be a sellout. And I think this is really, really important because the familiar narrative is, like you said, Ed Sullivan just happens to see all of the pandemonium, like you said, around the Beatles and books them for his show. But Sid was there first. Sid had booked them for Carnegie Hall long before they were ever booked on the Ed Sullivan show, long before they ever got any radio play in the States. I mean, he was really the first guy in the States to really see the potential at the time when Capitol Records in the States couldn't care less about the Beatles. They were actively ignoring the Beatles. But here's Sid, who's really the first guy to step up and and to have the vision of what their success could be in the States before Ed, before Capitol, before Murray the K, before any of that. Absolutely. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation. And these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! One, two, three, Close your eyes and I'll kiss you So he books them at Carnegie Hall for February 12th, 1964. He books it 11 months before the show, again, before the Beatles were making any waves anywhere in the States. But the show ends up selling out in 40 minutes (laughs) because, of course, by the time we get towards the Ed Sullivan show, they've... They've had a few hits in the States, and of course, they are massive on the Ed Sullivan show. But then through the rest of 1964, Sid kind of has a rough time, right? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, because of this success, he becomes the conduit for the British invasion. He's the number everyone has. Now, the Stones, the Animals, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Dave Clark Five, everybody is, Herman's Hermits, everybody is calling Sid to come to America. And he actually starts booking the television show Hullabaloo. And he is bringing all these groups over to America. And he's doing really great. But he made a big mistake. He booked the animals for a five-night run 
in New York thinking they would be as popular as the Beatles. And hey, nobody was as popular as the Beatles. So the first two nights were a big success. And the last three nights of that five-night run, he lost his shirt. And now he's in some financial hot water. He needs a big score. Yeah. You know, he's just had a baby. His wife is kind of of upset with this uh, turn of events. And um, yeah, he needs the big score. So he thinks to himself, who's the most popular group in the world? The Beatles. And hey, I have a great relationship with Brian Epstein. So what's the biggest venue I could possibly book them in? He thinks Madison Square Garden. No, not big enough. And he settles on Shea Stadium, which was only a year old. You know, Brian was really fussy and Shea was brand spanking new, still had the sparkle on it. And he thought, yes, he'll approve of this. So he calls Brian with the idea. And Brian immediately says, no, 56,000 seats. Are you crazy? We will never be able to sell that. No one ever had. No band, no pop artist ever had, right? Correct. And at this point, there were still a lot of naysayers about the Beatles. Mm -hmm. It's a fad. It will never last. It'll be over by the end of the year. Right. Um, so he didn't want to lay the Beatles open to a stadium that was only half filled where all these people could say, you see, just as we said. He was, and I think wisely, he was just trying to protect his boys, right? He didn't want to book them into a half full arena for the embarrassment and the bad press. It's, it's not an irrational thing for Brian to, uh, to be hesitant to do it. But then Sid offers them an incredible deal. Yeah, and you know, Brian's formula had been to play smaller places and have a line outside the door. Right. That's the look he was going for. So yes, so Sid, you know, when tickets ranged from like $4.50 to $6.50, Sid says to Brian, I will pay you $10.00. For every empty seat in the stadium. Right. He not only guarantees them $100,000, which is a huge paycheck at the time, but he also says, for every empty seat, I'll give you 10 bucks. I mean, I can't think of another deal like that at the time. That's, that's really, I mean, he, Sid was really taking a big risk there. Yes, but Sid believed, and he was the only one who believed, you know, not even Brian believed that this could happen. So Brian says, that's a deal I can't turn down, but here's my stipulation. I want 50% of the $100,000 in three months. And until I get that, you cannot advertise the concert. Right. No advertising, no publicity, 
but somehow I want you to sell half the half the tickets to this show. You know, Sid is like, well, uh, how can I possibly raise fifty grand without advertising? Right. And Brian says, well, I didn't say you couldn't talk about it. So this is really a fascinating part of the story of how Sid begins to sell these tickets. Walk us through that because it's it's just so great. And Brad, this is actually my favorite part of the story. I believe it. <laughs> it's so good. I just love this. So Sid's really depressed, right? He's like, yeah, and his wife is none too happy with this. No, no, she's too, right? off. She's off the wall. You know, at this point. She's ready to go home to mom. Are you crazy? What have you done to us? So, you know, so Sid and Sid, by the way, he was a very large man, <laughs> very heavy. And he, he knew the best entertainment and the best restaurants in New York. So I just see him walking down the street, eating a slice of pizza here, a hot pretzel there thinking, woe is me, what's going to happen? And he takes his son in his stroller to uh, Washington Square Park. And, you know, Sid was known by this time amongst all the kids for bringing all the great British groups over. He was pretty much the Pied Piper of rock and roll. So wherever he went and kids saw him, they ran up to him to find out the latest news and when they asked, what's going on, Mr. Bernstein, he said, well, I'm bringing the Beatles to Shea Stadium in August. Well, I mean, the girls begin screaming. One of them faints. <laughs> and they're throwing money at him. And he realizes, OK, maybe this could be something. He runs to the post office. He rents a P.O. box. He runs back to the park. He tells the girls how much the tickets are and the P.O. box address. And every day he goes to the park and he tells teenagers this story and gives them the address. And after three weeks, he finally works up enough courage to go to the P.O. box. He forgets his key. He's so nervous because this is it. If there's nothing in that P.O. box, he's a dead man. Right. They open the box for him. And when the post office workers find out who's there, they all come running out of the back to see who is the man behind this box. And he's like, what's going on? They drag out bags and bags of mail. He had to get his car to bring it all home. Mm -hmm. And inside those envelopes, he had uh, rubles. He had yen. He had money from behind the Iron Curtain. So at a time when there was only long distance phone calls and letter writing, these kids in Washington Square Park spread the news about the concert around the world. As I write this letter, send my love to you. Remember that I'll always be in love with you. Treasure these few words till we're together. Keep all my love forever. Yes, I love you. It's amazing. It's like a scene from a movie that you probably wouldn't believe it. 
if it was in a movie. But you, you can picture Sid and his wife at their kitchen table just opening these letter after letter, pulling out money for tickets. I mean, coins fell out, you know, it's just... <laughs> yeah. And then they, you know, came up with a way to go through all these bags and bags of mail. He actually hires some, like, local neighborhood girls or something to, to help him process all of these letters, right? Yes, they had a babysitter who was in nursing school and he asked her if she had six or seven friends who might want to work for them every night until they went through all of these envelopes. And over a three-week period of time, they managed to go through, you know, more than 50,000 envelopes. Yeah, I, I think you said in the book that they're, they end up, it takes them three months to process it, and they end up with, with over 3,000 envelopes that they don't even open, because by that time, they've sold all the tickets. The show sells out, and he, he ends up with uh, $304,000. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So when he meets Brian in January of 65, Brian is expecting $50,000 and he is able to give him the full $100,000. Right. Yeah. Brian's looking to probably questioning whether he's even going to get his $50,000 and uh, Sid ends up handing him the complete $100,000 check. It's just what a great, great story. Really, it's it's a wonderful story, and it's so you know wonderfully innocent, and uh, so speaks to the time. So now Sid has the hottest show in town that nobody knows about. <laughs> right? Yeah, because he still can't talk about it. So he's they start to prep for the show, and then his expenses start to to rack up for the staging and all of that kind of stuff. And then I believe. The mayor of New York tells him he has to cancel the show. What was that all about? Well, you know, he had to jump through a lot of hoops with the city. Mm -hmm, I bet. To make this happen. He had rented the stadium on his name alone. That's how well known he was in New York. He picked the date and the stadium said, we'll hold it for you, you know, until the money comes in. But the, the mayor wasn't so sure. They were very fearful, first of all, of security. Mm -hmm. What were they going to do if 10,000 fans decided to rush the stage? Right. How were we going to get the Beatles in and out of the stadium without them being injured? What's going to happen to traffic that day in New York? I mean, they had a million questions. And again, nothing like this had ever been done before, a rock show on this scale. But New York was pretty well aware of what Beatlemania looked like because, of course, they had already been through the chaos around the Ed Sullivan performance. So they had a taste of it. They could see what could potentially happen. So you can understand the concern. Oh, sure, sure. And they had, you know, seen the thousands of kids around the plaza in 64 when the Beatles stayed there and had done their 64 tour. So they knew that it could be absolute chaos out there. So in the days before the show, just kind of as we lead up to the events of the show, the Beatles fly from Heathrow Airport to New York City. They stay at the Warwick Hotel. Uh, that must have been another chaotic scene. Oh, yes. 
I mean, thousands, I can't even imagine, but thousands of kids on the street, mostly girls. The hotel was full of girls that somehow sneaked in or had their parents rent a room there or they disguised themselves as maids. And there were kids on top of the elevator uh, where they, you know, could have been crushed. Yeah. The, the day before the show, the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. They played, I think, like a six-song set. And then the day of the show, it's a hot and humid day, right? Like an 87-degree humid day in New York. Yes, sweltering summer day. You know, and the Beatles had been partying pretty good, too, at the hotel. You know, Bob Dylan was in town and some of their other friends, the Ronettes, uh, were coming by to see them. And there was a lot of uh, smoking pot and playing records. And, you know, they couldn't go out unless it was in secret. Right. So they were they were making the best of their quarantine, pretty much. Yeah, and this was their life then on the road. I mean, literally wasn't safe for them to, to leave the room. Not much of an existence. No. You know, it, at a time when people's security now is massive, you know, they basically had three guys and Brian watching out for them. So the day of the concert comes around and they've already decided that they are going to have to fly the Beatles in a helicopter over to Shea Stadium. And George was was really not fond of flying. Yeah, George was a notorious bad flyer. <laughs> yes, and the helicopter made him virtually weep with fear. The pilot of the helicopter said, well, you guys have been trapped in your room. You haven't even been able to see any of New York. Let me show you uh, the Empire State Building. Let me show you the Chrysler Building. And he's zooming through the streets, you know, up above. And George is, is literally white knuckling, crying, get me down out of here, please. Yeah. All of this was filmed for the documentary. They had... Um, you know, cameraman on the helicopter with them. So all of this was caught on film. And of course, they could not land in the stadium because they were afraid that kids would rush the helicopter and there could be uh, terrible damage there. So they landed across the street, really, across the way where the New York World's Fair was happening. And they suddenly, you know, I mean, as well thought out as this was, they suddenly realized if we drive the Beatles over in a limo, that limo's going to be mobbed. Kids will jump on it and God knows what will happen. And so now how are we going to get them into the stadium? And uh, one security guy is looking around and he sees an, a Wells Fargo armored truck no windows, sitting unused, and won't be needed for the next couple of hours. So he talks to the driver and commandeers this armored truck, finds four Wells Fargo badges in the front seat. He gives one to each of the Beatles, and he loads them up in the back of the truck. Poor George also is claustrophobic. George now, who is green, 
from the helicopter is now being forced into the back of this truck and they are safely driven into Shea Stadium. Now, before we talk about the show, I think one of the kind of interesting side stories is that Sid was also, I believe he was managing the Rascals, right? The band, the Rascals. The Rascals didn't play at the show, but he had a bunch of promotion for them going on, right? He was really trying to get their name in front of the audience. Oh, Sid was really the ultimate old school promoter. Actually, the Beatles did a uh, press conference in a ballroom at the Warwick and Sid had plants in the audience asking the Beatles, have you heard the Rascals yet? What do you think of them? You know, they were clueless, you know, never heard of them. But Sid just was getting that name out there. So when kids coming into the stadium were looking into the dugout where they knew the Beatles would uh, make their entrance, they saw some guys with long hair and they mistook them for the Beatles and went running down there. Well, it was the Rascals. And yes, Sid had buttons and photos and all kinds of stuff that uh, they were signing and handing out. And he also took the opportunity to flash, the Rascals are coming, the Rascals are coming, on a small, you know, welcoming screen in the stadium. Which I think Brian wasn't too crazy about. Oh, yes. Brian quashed that immediately. I interviewed Felix Cavallari of the Rascals on his experience there that day. And he said, Brian just very quietly said, if that is not removed in the next 10 seconds, Sid, we shall be leaving And so Sid immediately had that taken down. No one rides on the coattails of the Beatles, is what Brian said. He was always watching out for his boys. Right. That's just a great, great story, though. And typical for the shows of the day, this was kind of like a kind of like a review show where the Beatles weren't the only ones that that performed. There was a handful of opening acts. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the folks who Uh, open the show for the Beatles. And can you imagine? (laughs) 56,000 people are there and not one of them is wanting to see you. That's that's exactly right. The first uh, group was the fantastic sax player, King Curtis. And um, he played behind a group called the Discotheque Dancers, who demonstrated the hot dances of the day. And actually one of them, uh, one of the ladies in, I found three of the five ladies from that group. Yeah, you actually interview them in your in your book. Oh, yeah. And one of them said, well, my dad went with me that night and he took 80 color slides that evening. And we looked at them once and they've been in a drawer ever since. Would you like to have them? Um, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you've got you've got some great photographs in the book, and I imagine a lot of this stuff has never been really publicly seen before. You have those photographs. You also uh, spoke to a number of at the time young young folks who attended the show, and you you've got some photographs from from some of those people. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the other people in the book who contributed some of these great photographs to the book. 
Um, oh, and thanks. Yeah, you know, it sounds like I'm making it up to say at this late date, I have hundreds of photos that people have never seen, but I, I actually do. One guy, Mark Weinstein, was 17 years old, and he was bound and determined to get on the field. He sneaked into the bowels of Shea Stadium. He began trying every door he came to. They were all locked. And finally, one doorknob turns in his hands. He opens it, and the room is full of cops. <laughs> and he thought, oy vey. He said to me, I thought, oy vey. <laughs> if I run, I'm done. So he just w thought really fast, walked in, faked a British accent, told them he was a friend of George Harrison's and he was supposed to take photos that night, but had gotten separated from the group and they led him right out onto the field. He took 60 photos from the edge of the stage, all of which are in the book and one of which is the cover of the book. And that is a great shot of George and John. Oh, I, I love that shot, too. It was the last shot of the night. And there was another gentleman who had to be coerced to even go to the concert. And he decided he, he didn't even know who the Beatles were. He decided he was also going to try and get into the stadium. And the door that was unlocked and opened to him led right into their dressing room. I mean, he opened the door and there they were. It's incredible. With just like 10 other people. So he walked in and uh, just started taking photos. And he also got onto the field and took more photos. So I have several photos that George Orsino took. And, um, oh, let's see, Carly Simon's brother, Peter, was there, and he took, he was, I believe, 18, and he took some wonderful photos of the uh, the fans. Uh, so, yeah, just, uh, they covered it. You know, like Marvin Gaye was there. He was introduced to the audience. He didn't perform, but my friend Dawn from the discotheque dancers heard she had danced backing up Marvin Gaye. So when her father saw Marvin Gaye, he took his picture. That's the only picture that exists of Marvin Gaye at Shea Stadium. That's great. And he's holding his own little movie camera. Oh, I wonder what happened to that film. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the photographs in the book are just, I mean, they're great between the photographs of the crowd and, and the band. It really does a great job of just capturing the, the energy and the, the excitement of, of that night. Oh, the, the girls running across the field and the, and the Beatles pointing to the runners and encouraging them and the police running after them, um, you know, just uh, kids scaling the walls to, to get in from the outside. It's just, and what kills me is the security that Sid had to arrange and that Brian insisted on. And here are these people literally just walking in, yeah. walking into their dressing room, walking out onto the field. You know, again, today it could have been a terrible situation. Right. But there was nothing but love and joy out there. Yeah. 
Sid does uh, get Ed Sullivan to agree to introduce them at the show. And Sullivan makes us kind of a side agreement with Brian Epstein to film the show. And Sid gets kind of cut out of, of that whole thing, which is a, is a shame. Yes. And, you know, Sid could have chosen to introduce the Beatles. Sid could have taken that moment for himself, but that's not who Sid was. And he realized that the country's association with Ed and the Beatles was where it was at. And so he graciously invited Sullivan to introduce them. And Sullivan couldn't say yes fast enough. Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated by their queen, and loved here in America, here are the Beatles. Here they come. So after after all the buildup, the Beatles play a short 30-minute set, which was standard for the day. They play 12 songs. Twist and Shout, She's a Woman, I Feel Fine. Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Ticket to Ride, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, which is Georgia's showcase. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up and they called it. Can't Buy Me Love, Babies in Black, which I think is a really interesting choice. Act naturally, that's Ringo's moment. Hard Day's Night, Help, and of course, I'm Down, which closes the show.
but I mean, that's a tight little set there. This was before the two-hour concerts, the marathon Bruce Springsteen concerts that we get these days. You got 30 minutes of the Beatles, and they were out of there. I believe that's the same set they played all on the rest of the tour. What are some of your favorite moments of that set? I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the film by now, having written the book and everything. What, what jumps out to you when you think about that set? Well, I love Twist and Shout, and that's a great opener, um, especially after the crowd had been waiting so long. There were several other opening acts I didn't mention and lots of radio personalities in between. I mean, it just was endless. You know, the crowds got there at, at six. I think the stadium opened at six and the show started at seven and the Beatles didn't go on till nine. Right. So Twist and Shout's a great opener. Help had just opened a few weeks before. Yeah, they had filmed in the interim between when uh, Sid books the show and they actually perform the show. They film the movie Help and, of course, record that track in the album during that time. So that was pretty current material for them. You know, they reprised Hard Day's Night, of course, because that was still so uppermost in, in fans' minds. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I do be sleeping like a log. But when I get on to you, I find the things that you do make me feel. Uh, no, she loves you. No, I want to hold your hand. Yeah, they were moving away from that, you know, trying to play their more current stuff. And as a matter of fact, I'm down. This was the first time they had played that. Right. That was just a B-side. And, you know, it's the only song John's on the organ, mm -hmm. which was um, almost uncomfortable for him. He said, I didn't know what to do without my guitar. There I am standing behind this organ, you know, which was something so new for him. Yeah, but it, probably every Beatles fan is fairly familiar with that footage, has probably seen it. But it's not only the final moment of the show, but it really is just... To me, that's the greatest moment of the show. And John is just having a blast pounding away at that electric piano or whatever. And it's one of McCartney's great vocals on that, that song. He really 
gets his best little Richard voice out for that. But it's such a great moment. The footage of them playing I'm Down at Shea Stadium is just so great. Man, my dream woman throws it away. Same old thing happen every day. I'm down. I'm really down. I'm down. Down on the ground. I'm down. I'm really down. Oh, how can you laugh when you know I'm down? How can you laugh when you know I'm wild? You know, they were a little bit afraid to go out there. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were also there, and they were in the dressing room with the Beatles. And Mick had, had gotten uh, a little beat up on his way into the uh, dressing room. Hmm. You know, some tough guys from Brooklyn were like, you think you're so great, bam, bam, and they're hitting him. And the Beatles were like, uh-oh, what's exactly going to happen out there? And Cousin Brucey assured them that they were going to be met with nothing but love. And from the moment they step out there, that's my favorite moment of the documentary. They start looking around. They just can't even believe what they're seeing. Right. You know, it's, it, it's stunning, this number of people. And by the time they're through with their set and they're into I'm down, you know, and they know nobody can hear them. John has started to introduce songs just speaking gobbledygook. Thank you, Ringo. The next song we like to sing. And George is ready because he knows nobody can hear them and it doesn't matter what they say. And now he's on this electric piano and he knows nobody can hear that either. And you're right, he's pounding it. He's playing it with his elbow. Ringo looks over and thinks, well, he's just lost it. And George is trying desperately to stay serious. And finally, he just can't. He just can't stay serious anymore. John has completely cracked him up and he makes his way over to John. And that is the shot that Mark Weinstein caught. The cover of the book and the photo is in the book as well. It's just a great shot of... John and George grinning ear to ear. You know, it's the last song of the set. They know they've pulled it off. What a release that must have been. But I, I can imagine the terror stepping on the stage at the beginning of that set and then everything they went through to get to that emotional moment at the end of it. You know, truly, if the Beatles remember only one concert, this is the concert they remember. Yeah. You know, there was just nothing like it ever and yes that release must have been just i mean they did it they really did it and uh, you know that's where the, the title of the book comes from um several years later john was out one evening with sid bernstein and they were reminiscing about that night and he said to sid i saw the top of the mountain on that glorious night that's great so when all is said and done 
concert's over. Everybody goes home. When uh, Sid tallies it all up, he ends up making a total of 3000 bucks for the show. Incredible. I know. I don't know where it all went. Yeah. You know, and Felix Cavallari said Sid was a wonderful, honest, kind, generous, savvy man. But not all managers have both the business sense and the financial sense. You know, Sid knew what he was doing promotion-wise. He recognized great talent when he heard it. But he wasn't that great with the money end of it. But as you said, you know, this this assured him a place in, in history. I remember in the 80s going to my first Beatle convention. Sid was a frequent speaker at those. And this was, you know, 20 years after the show. And people still love to come and hear him tell his stories of the show. And I imagine he did that right up until the day he, uh, he passed. Yes, lived to be 95 years old. And was so proud, so proud of this great achievement, as well he should be. Because, frankly, this concert changed changed the world. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about how this show changed history, where where it fits, and the impact it had. Well, you know, clearly this was the future. And technology woke up the next morning and said, we flunked. Nobody could see them. Nobody could hear them. And this is all we're going to see from this day forward. So we better get on board. And four years later, there was Woodstock. So they got on board in a big strapping hurry. Yeah, it's people forget that at this time, what they were using for a PA system was basically the same setup that they used for the announcers of the ball games, which were nowhere near adequate in terms of just pure volume and sound quality. That stuff sounds atrocious. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't uh, all the big PA systems and monitors and all that stuff you have now. None of that stuff existed back then. Right, right. And no diamond screen to see them up close. Um, you know, we didn't even mention also at this concert were were teenagers like Meryl Streep and Joe Walsh and Steve Van Zant and Whoopi Goldberg was nine. She was there. Two future Beatle wives. And Mer- Meryl Streep was way up in the nosebleed seats with her little I Love Paul sign. And she said, I had a better view of New Jersey than I did of the Beatles. <laughs> but it didn't matter. You know, everybody right. was just so happy to share the space with these guys they loved so much. But clearly later on, people want to see them. Sure. Um, so yes, yeah, so technology got the big wake-up call. Madison Avenue saw 56,000 young people together and realized we're only selling these kids acne medicine. There is potential here for a, a lot more money. So boom, the boomers immediately get on the map. So, you know, everything raced to catch up with this new, young generation that was changing the world. 
just an amazing time for for music and music was driving the culture in a way that it never had before. Yes, you know, people literally went from maybe 10 friends gathered around your parents' hi-fi to crowds of this size. Many of the opening act people, as well as the fans in the audience that I interviewed, said how empowering it was to be in the presence of 56,000 people who felt the same way that you felt. That was a life-changing event for many of the people there. You know, it was it was really amazing to talk to them. And the fans I spoke to that were there, and, and literally from Meryl Streep on down to just your basic fan, they still had the amazing enthusiasm that they had that night. They never lost it. It was still the most incredible event that any of them had ever attended. That's great. Well, the book is called Top of the Mountain. It's Sid Bernstein's story, which is a fascinating story. It's the story of dozens of people who attended the show and played their little part in the show by taking photographs or just being witnesses to the event. And, of course, it's the Beatles' story of what was at the time the biggest concert in rock history and still stands as, I think, one of the most significant concerts ever. Lori, I really love the book. It was just a great, fun read. Thank you for coming on and talking about it because it's been a blast talking to you about the book and the concert. Thanks, Brad. I so appreciate that. I really do. Sure. What do you got coming up next? Any uh, Anything on the agenda for Lori Jacobson? You know, this was my sixth book, and I primarily am a Hollywood historian, and I have written lots and lots about the history of Hollywood, scandals and mysteries and all kinds of aspects of Hollywood history. And I think that my next book is something I've been preparing for for a very long time, which is a history of the Sunset Strip. That should be great. So there will be lots of music there. Yeah, a lot of stories to tell there, that's for sure. Well, Lori Jacobson, thank you so much for doing the show with me. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the book and the books in the future. And um, thanks for the conversation. I had a ball. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, Lori. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Go pick up a copy of Lori's book. You'll love it. I'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. Until then, you can listen to all of our previous shows, including more episodes on the Beatles, on our website, lovethatsongpodcast.com. It's the place you'll find them. I always appreciate your reviews and your feedback. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to tell a friend about it because your word-of-mouth recommendations, they're the best advertising we could get. Thanks again for listening to this show and all of the other shows on the Pantheon Network. I'll see you next time right here on the I'm in Love with That Song podcast. You make me dizzy, the way you rock and roll. You make me
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 